Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Mom, can I have 200 bucks for a 256K game station? That's less than a dollar a K. Oh, I might be able to help you with a song about thrift. When you get a penny from a chum, don't just buy some bubble gum. Put it in your cap. Put it in your cap. When you find a nickel in the snow, don't just blow it on a picture show. Put it in your cap. Put it in your cap. I don't have a cap. When you spy a quarter in a pie. All right. That, of course, is uh, Marge singing to Bart. And if I have to tell you their last names, you're probably not going to even enjoy this show very much. Um, but I'm assuming that you know it's The Simpsons. Joining us right now for the show is an old friend of the show, uh, someone who's joined us many times, Mike Reese, Emmy and Peabody award-winning writer, showrunner, and producer for The Simpsons for 30 years and the co-author with Matthew Clickstein of Springfield Confidential, Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime uh, Writing for the Simpsons. Mike has written a dozen children's books and contributed to several films, including Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs. I might as well just go on about Mike for a bit more and say that he's going to be at the Mark Twain House on Thursday, July 26th from 7 to 8.30 uh, p.m. for Mark My Words, Mike Reese, His Life's a Joke, uh, and you can buy tickets at themarktwainhouse.org. I, maybe you could even just comment on that little song that Marge is singing uh, on at the top there. One of the things that uh, Springfield Confidential, your book, does so well is uh, give us kind of a sense of where all these little treasures come from. Yes, uh, I was listening to that. I go, is that really The Simpsons? I didn't recognize the clip. I go, Bart sounds completely wrong. I don't know. There are days where, where Nancy Cartwright, the, who, the voice of Bart, comes in with a cold, and so right. Bart is just sick that week, or sometimes we'll do four <laughs> shows, and Bart is sick for a month, so uh, I don't recognize that bit, which I think that tells you something about The Simpsons, which is uh, the writers in the show, we love our show, we love our job, we're not, <laughs> we don't love it as much as the fans do, so we do it, and I'll pretty much watch it when it's on TV once, and then I move on with my life, but people... Everybody seems to know the show much better than I do. Well, I think the another aspect of this is that there are a lot of jokes in every single episode yeah. of The Simpsons. And so Roy Blunt Jr., years and years ago, when I was a fledgling person writing humor, said to me, he, he was writing a letter to me, and he said, humor should be funnier than necessary. I got right away what he meant. And nothing embodies this more than the Simpsons, right? I mean, the episodes tend to be funnier than probably anybody could reasonably ask them to be. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I'll just say it's the big takeaway everybody has had from the book, which I didn't expect at all, is they didn't realize it's so much work making The Simpsons. <laughs> and there was something I put in the book very reluctantly. Somebody said, well, give us, give us a breakdown how you make a show. And I go, you don't want to know it. It's so it's such a dull process. And uh, it's a 23-step process in making one episode of The Simpsons. And for contrast, I looked up how, how many steps are there in a liver transplant, and it's it's eight. Right. So you can you can transplant three livers or make one episode of The Simpsons 
where virtually every character on the show needs a new liver. So that was it. Nobody realized we just we just write the show and rewrite it and rewrite it. And every time we take a look at it, we change it all over again. And it's not busy work. It's not like workaholics who are just grind. You know, can't wait to leave the office. It's we just always know. Oh, this can be a little better. And once we fix this spot, suddenly the uh, the spot next to it doesn't look as funny. So. For example, if you wrote the greatest Simpsons script in history, and Colin, that's not going to happen, but if you did, if you wrote a great Simpsons script, by the time it hits the air, maybe 80% of it's been changed, and, mm-hmm. and very often 100% changes, and that's just our process. Yeah, there, you have a timeline in the book uh, where you descri- sort of describe a, a typical day, and at one point, you and it's the sixth rewrite of something, and you say, I get a joke put in. It's replacing a joke that I put into the fifth rewrite. Um, That's correct. Yeah. You know, one of the things I always wonder is how many people actually do get offended. The cartoonist Brooke Breathitt of Bloom County one time told me that it was getting harder and harder to so successfully insult somebody that they didn't want <laughs> an, an original copy of the strip. I don't know whether you're, how much you're joking or not, but you, you kind of indicate that the beer industry and perhaps Budweiser in particular uh, would be among the groups of people who occasionally had problems with the show. Yes, uh, that was a specific example where, uh, yeah, I guess we had Hitler's head in a bottle and Budweiser called to complain. And uh, we said, gee, come on, let, let it go. It was just a joke. Uh, but they they didn't like that we'd made a lot of fun of beer. And it was, what was strange was there was nothing they could do to us. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're on at 8 o'clock. Beer, beer doesn't advertise at 8 o'clock at night. I mean, now I'm sure they advertise at 6 in the morning. But uh, at the time, they weren't even an advertiser. So they could get as mad as they want. And I think... I think they may have pulled all their ads off of the Fox network because of uh because I I was a little uh short with them on the phone call. Right. So but the context of this also is that uh, on one episode, one night, Homer is watching TV. I'm reading from your book. Oh, and an ad right. says, warning, beer can cause liver damage, kidney failure, and cancer of the rectum. And Homer says, mmm, beer. So that kind of yeah. got it started, right? That's what got, I'm, I forgot my own anecdote. It's just like that song you just played. <laughs> yes, that was the joke. You really and, do write for The Simpsons, though, right? I mean, this yeah. isn't something. <laughs> No, I write for The Simpsons. I, uh, it's it's not a very it's a Bible show about a really strong family. Now, so we wrote that joke, and and Budweiser called to complain. They said you can't say that, and we said we looked it up. It causes cancer of the rectum, and so then they complained about that. Then they complained about Hitler's head in the bottle, and then the woman made the mistake of saying to me. She said, I'll have you know the president of our company, Augustus Bush, was considered a very big hero in World War II. And I said, by the Nazis? And <laughs> that was the joke that got them to pull all their advertising off the air. That was the gag that cost Fox, I think, about $80 million that year. Um, and, and well, I mean, how— how much pushback is there ever from the network about anything that you do? I mean, have they given up? Do they care? Do they fight back? Fox, to their credit, you know, people don't say a lot of nice things about Fox these days. Fox has never interfered with the content of the show. They have never meddled one bit. Uh, you know, we attack the we attack the Fox network and Fox News. 
pretty much on a weekly basis. And we're not being impudent. We're not just biting the hand that feeds us. We think they're an evil organization and must be stopped. <laughs> so we make a lot of fun of Fox, and they ha- never complain. You know, Rupert Murdoch has been on our show, I think, three times. We've shown him in a prison cell eating a rat. He has no problem with that. And, in fact, there was an amazing episode where we just, I forget, it had a political theme. So we just went after Fox News for a solid half hour. We just, we were pretty relentless. And this rumor went around that Fox News was suing the Simpsons, which is insane because that's like Rupert Murdoch's right pocket suing his left pocket. (laughs) When, in fact, what happened, we made merciless fun of Fox News for a half hour. And the next day they called us and said, do it again. <laughs> so one of the things, uh, one of the things that uh, the Simpsons has done from the very beginning is is just kind of stretch the limits of what you can get away with, particularly in an animated uh, format. And one of the conventions of the show that people love, it's sort of a trope of the show, is uh, Bart's endless st- string of prank calls to Moe's, the bar where people hang out. Let's uh, hear one of those prank calls. Flaming Mose. Uh, yes, I'm looking for a friend of mine. Last name Jazz, first name Hugh. Ah, uh, hold on, I'll check. Uh, Hugh Jazz! Oh, somebody check the men's room for a Hugh Jazz! Oh, uh, I'm Hugh Jazz. Telephone. Hello, this is Hugh Jazz. Uh, hi. Who's this? Bart Simpson. What can I do for you, Bart? Uh, look, I'll level with you, mister. This is a crank call that sort of backfired, and I'd like to bail out right now. All right. Better luck next time. What a nice young man. In this day and age, sneaking the term huge ass onto a TV show is probably no accomplishment whatsoever. But at the beginning, <laughs> were those phone calls sort of a way of seeing if you kind of kind of play around with standards and practices? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I would say we, we just were having fun with them. You know, we we all made prank calls when we were kids and we said this is a, a great thing for Bart to do. Yeah, so we we loved to make them as dirty as we could. There there was an interesting time right around the second or third year of The Simpsons where Fox said, you can say the word ass now on TV. They just decreed it. It it had been (laughs) dirty for 50 years of TV, and suddenly they said, you're allowed one ass per week. And we go, thank you, God. You know, giving, giving a comedy writer one ass a week was like saying, Take Friday off. It just made your job so much easier. And uh, and then we got to an episode that had two funny ass jokes. Can I say ass on NPR? I think you know. The other day we had a guest who live on the air said, "Can I say B O N E R?" And I said, <laughs> "I said you know spelling it doesn't really help that much." <laughs> you have said that. All right. Yes, you can say ass. I've agreed that sorry. you can say ass. You can say ass six times, and okay. you've said it three already. All right, thanks for keeping track. So so we had two A words in the episode, and we, we said we can only do one. And so it was like the Civil War at The Simpsons. There were sides drawn up which joke we would do, and we finally put it to a vote, and we decided to go with the first ass use. But then when we reran the show, we switched it out and used the second ass. And, you know, why can't America work this way? <laughs> And then uh, just the, the P.S. to that story is about six months after we'd gone through this this terrible strife over our two asses, Fox 
put on put on the air a show called Bob's Big Ass Show, and they said ass nonstop, and it was it was a game show, and the word ass was on screen twenty two minutes a week uh, for the six or seven weeks the show ran. Right, but you were sort of the pioneers, you know. You were the the Lewis and Clark of ass, you know. You just <laughs> <went up>. <laughs> <laughs> you explored the territories and saw what was possible, and. And made this other wonderful entertainment product uh, possible for the rest of us, too. So you should be a very <laughs> proud you. young man, Mike Reese. That's it. I am, I am the Sacagawea of ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> the ass, the Asagawea of sack, by the way, is another word we got on the air. Um, <laughs> all right. So I just, I, I just want to continue for one more second with the funnier-than-necessary <laughs> concept. Well, I mean, the other thing yes. that's funnier, way funnier-than-necessary are the credits. I mean, one of the nice things about the credits— for pretty much everybody else except the Simpsons is they're the same damn thing every week. You know, so the one thing you don't have to work on are the credits. You guys decided that you would have to put an incredible amount of work into the credits, coming up with something for Bart to, well, actually, I'll let you tell the story of the credits. You're the guest. Tell the okay. story of the credits. The, uh, the credits from episode one, Bart would write something different on the chalkboard every week at the start of credits. And at the end, the family would run in and sit on a couch, and something funny would happen when they sat on the couch. And uh, by the way, this is something nobody seems to realize, including me. I'd forgotten all about this. They're running in to the, sit on the couch to watch TV and mm. presumably to watch The Simpsons. And this was Matt Groening's uh, concept where he said, you know, nobody on TV ever watches TV, so let's open our show with that. So that's why they're running and sitting down on the couch. Um, but the idea of this all came from uh, the most unlikely source, which was the 1950s Mickey Mouse Club. The Mickey Mouse Club also had the same damn credits every single week. But at the end of the credits, Donald Duck would hit a gong and something terrible would happen. The mm. gong would explode or it would vibrate or... Uh, uh, Donald would get electrocuted. There was some animal abuse every single week, and it was different. And that's that's where we took that idea from. And it makes for a lot of work. It's a, it's you know it is something that nobody else bothers to do. And then the show went to high def. I think about ten years ago, and the boss decreed, "Oh, now we can put even more jokes in the opening credits." <laughs> so now we have a thing called a flyby. It's uh, where uh, Somebody drifts by camera before the credits even begin. There's a funny electric billboard. Lisa, this is, again, I work at the show. I never noticed this. Lisa uh, is in music class in the opening credits, and she walks out playing a little sax solo. The solo changes every single week. Wow. So there's all all of those jokes. It's a hell of a lot of work, and we're pretty much burnt out by the end of the opening credits. <laughs> right. But um, it's just something we do. By And let me say one more thing, which is every Simpsons episode opens with a joke that nobody gets. Nobody has ever gotten this joke. I must. It must have been seen literally 10 billion times around the world. No one's ever caught it as a joke, which means it's not that great a joke. But mm. here it is when... The Simpsons, the title card fades onto screen, comes through the clouds. It goes, the Simps, uns. And so you first see the word Simps. And Simps, uh, if you're of a certain age, knows 
Uh, you would know it means simpletons, fools, idiots. So we're consciously saying you're about to see a bunch of simps. You're about to see a bunch of idiots. And uh, I mentioned that one day at work, and even the writers on the show didn't notice that. Right. I certainly didn't notice it until I read your book. And then when I read your book and I noticed it, I thought, well, that doesn't really enrich my life that much one way or the other. <laughs> no, not, but, but many other things in your book did enrich my life. I don't want to suggest no. that p people's lives won't be better after they read Springfield Confidential uh, by my guest, Mike Reese. So one of the things that is a source of endless fascination for me is your ability to get people to be guest stars on the show. Everybody seems to want to do it. They don't seem to be m even mind making fun of their reputations. Um, just to remind people of kind of how this goes, uh, let's hear a clip from season 16. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Guest Star with Liam Neeson. If you do break a rule, you can always find absolution in the sacrament of confession. Wait, 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 wait. No matter what I did, no matter how many people lost their pensions, it's forgiven like that? If you truly repent, then yes. Okay, let's make some magic here. I wiped a booger on your shirt. I made a dog and a cat kiss. I swiped a bolted-down TV from a Holiday Inn. I coveted the wife in Jaws 2. I lied to a waiter. I masturbated 8 billion times, and I have no plans to stop masturbating in the future. Woohoo! I'm clean! In your face, Lord! Uh, not quite, Mr. Simpson. I can only absolve you if you're a Catholic. Right. And how do I join? Do I wail on some Unitarians? Well, it's a little harder than that. It begins by looking inside yourself. Oh! But it ends with bread and wine. Woohoo! <laughs> All right, Liam Neeson, a guest starring on The Simpsons. So, um, Mike Reese, when I was growing up, there were lots of um, animated series that I really enjoyed a lot as a kid and even as a, uh, a young adult. But I used to watch all of them. Like, you know, I would watch even, say, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, and I would think, why is Thomas Pynchon never featured on this as a guest <laughs> voice? How come, they, how come nobody taps into the comedic voice talents uh, of Thomas Pynchon? <clears throat> so you've actually got the reclusive writer of Thomas Pynchon to be on twice, right? Yes. Well, we got him on once, and then he just sort of forced himself on us the second time. <laughs> I don't know what how it happened, but it was Thomas Pynchon, the National Book Award winner, who uh, hasn't been interviewed or photographed in 40 years, called The Simpsons said, I want to be a guest star on your show. We said, why? He said, I want to do one thing in my life that impresses my kids. <laughs> so... We wrote him apart, and we flew to his cave in Montana to record him. No, he, <laughs> we flew to New York, and, and everybody loved him. He was a really nice guy and very funny, and he recorded his part. And he was the one who said, we said, how do you want to be depicted? He said, just put a bag on my head. So that's how we animate <laughs> Thomas Finchin on our show. He's wearing a paper bag. He looks like the unknown comic. So we recorded him. We go, what a great experience. Someday we should read one of his books. We go back to L.A., and it's Thomas Pynchon calling again. He goes, put me on again. I loved it. So we wrote him another part, went back to New York, recorded him again. Thomas Pynchon will not stop calling us. This is not a problem everybody has to deal with. No, it's, a, it, it's sort of – I had this whole theory that people who are reclusive, like if they just – you know, if you had managed to break through with J.D. Salinger, which I know you tried to do, the same thing yeah. would have happened. He'd go, well, how about next week? What am I doing next week? You know, once it's just it's a matter of breaking that ice and, and then they can't stop. I mean, I guess it is the case that people who are fans of the show who want to impress their kids. I mean, so they make an ask a lot of the time. But I want you to talk in particular 
about William Friedkin. William Friedkin, for people who can't place that name, is the director of The Exorcist and The French Connection and a bunch of other movies. Tell the Bill Friedkin story. The Bill Friedkin story was, it was, it might have been season two or three of The Simpsons. We, we still didn't, you know, the show was popular. We didn't know who watched our show. We didn't know we had, if celebrities watched it. We still, at that point, weren't getting big guest stars or anything like that. And we were working on a pretty famous show called Mr. Plow about Homer driving a snow plow. And someone walked in and said, oh, I just heard William Friedkin's a fan of The Simpsons. And so we said, all right, let's let's write a joke just for him. And we wrote a joke in Mr. Plow that was a parody of William Friedkin's movie Sorcerer, which we had seen and may have been the only people in the world who had seen no, it. No, I've seen it too. But we, it's a great movie. Yeah. It's a great, great movie. And uh, so we, we just wrote this parody of Sorcerer into a, an episode where it had no business being. And then we kind of forgot about it. And, you know, we never knew if he saw it or not. So... Cut ahead 26 years later, I think I uh, a friend of mine says, do you know William Friedkin? I'm having dinner with him. And I go, oh, pass him this note. And this was my connection to Friedkin. He was a friend of a friend of somebody's sister's boss. And th- that's how I got my note to William Friedkin, just saying, hey, did you ever see our joke? And he wrote back the most effusive letter. Oh, my God, I love that joke. I have... Simpsons art up in my house, which I don't, by the way. But uh, (laughs) he was our biggest fan, so I invited him to a Simpsons table reading to meet the cast. And, you know, you forget how much impact William Friedkin has had on us with the French Connection, especially The Exorcist. He, He was the most charming man in the world. I never saw this kind of electricity at a Simpsons table reading from except the time William Friedkin just came in and... So we immediately, again, something we've never done, we rode him into the show that morning. He was there, and the amazing thing is we he walked in, we were recording a Halloween show that had a parody of The Exorcist in it, and <laughs> that was just the day he happened by, but it shows you he's sort of omnipresent in culture. So we said, let's write him into the show, and whoever idiot was in charge of the rewrite didn't put him in The Exorcist parody. They put him in <laughs> some segment set in the Old West so that wasn't the best use of Mr. Friedkin. But he's he stayed a friend of the show, and I hope we can use him again. I got to interview him in person years ago. And the one thing that I wanted to know was, because Friedkin's kind of a maniac for sound. It's not surprising to me that he likes The Simpsons, in which sound does play an important part. How you made the sound of Regan's head going in that 360-degree you know, turnaround in The Exorcist. And he reached into his pocket and he said, it's this wallet. He took out this very soft-looking leather wallet, held in front of a very, very sensitive microphone and doing this. And he just started sort of kind of twisting the leather uh, of the wallet. So it kind of squeaked and creaked the way, I guess, leather would. Um, And I thought, oh, wow, I now know something, you know. Go ahead. He's tremendous. (laughs) Tremendously charming guy. Uh, Even as as well-regarded as he is, He's 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 uh, underrated. As you, people should see the movies he's been making lately. A movie like Bug is the most unsettling movie you'll ever see. And again, it had this weird scene at the end. And I said to him, uh, Mr. Friedkin, what did that mean? He goes, oh, I don't know. Sometimes I put things in like that and try to let people figure them out. It's a sound effect. And in fact, at the end of... Uh, the French Connection, which is one of the great, great 
even among Oscar winners, it's my favorite Oscar winning film. And it ends with a gunshot. And I, everyone asks, what is that gunshot? He goes, I don't know. It needed something at the end. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're talking to Mike Reese right now. Uh, his uh, book is Springfield Confidential, Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime of Writing for the Simpsons. And he does mean a lifetime. It's written with uh, Matthew Clickstein. Uh, we are going to take a break right now. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more. But for now, enjoy this music. I got a bratty brother. He bugs me every day. And this morning, my own mother, she gave my last cupcake away. Saddest kid in grade number two. Hey, folks, my name's Buddy Sorrell. Now, Sam Pomerantz asked me to welcome you here to his little sanitarium, where the, uh, well, the food is untouched by human hands. The chef is an armadillo. <laughs> Remember, no matter how tough the steaks are, you can always stick your fork in the gravy. <laughs> hey, if you like the place, look around. I was done by Frank Lloyd Wrong. <laughs> it's done kind of uh, early, forget it. But the rooms are beautiful. The rooms are lovely. I got a room with an adjoining. I don't know what it's adjoining. I can't get the door open. <laughs> hey, it's homey. Do you notice the little signs over the beds? It says, sleep here, and the angels watch over you. A couple of them bit me. <laughs> All right, uh, we're talking to Mike Reese. His book is Springfield Confidential. He's been on our show many times, a longtime writer for uh, The Simpsons. Uh, we're hearing a little bit uh, of, of one of your uh, inspirations, right? This is uh, Maury Amsterdam's character, Buddy Sorrell. Absolutely my hero. It's that I, I just lit up hearing that. I haven't heard Buddy Sorrell in, in a couple of decades, and he's as great as I remember. So you, you, you watched, you grew up like all good Americans uh, watching television and and I assume just digging on the comedy especially. Yes, I did. I watched, I probably watched eight hours of TV a day. I just loved TV and my mom would always go, get out of the house. You know, what's all this TV going to get you? <laughs> and about 10 years later, I'm working in TV. I go, ma, I'm making more than dad. That's where the TV got me. <laughs> <laughs> great work all those eight years in medical school, eh, Dad? Let me buy you dinner. So, <laughs> well, the good thing is you've been so gracious about the whole thing. <laughs> so yes, I, but that was it. I love TV, and I, you know, I never took a TV writing course. I never took any kind of writing course, and uh, I've never worked with a writer who took a writing course. And I think the course you take is just watching a lot of TV and not even analyzing it, not picking it apart. It's just sort of absorbing it, absorbing it and liking the good shows better and sort of picking up on what they do well. So that was it. That was my crash course in writing was just watching. And, you know, you listen to that clip you played of Buddy Sorrell and it felt like The Simpsons. Those jokes were coming really, really fast. They were. 
Well, I, I think whether or not you analyze the jokes or not, you are analyzing the jokes. And, and I think one thing that I've noticed about writers like you, and uh, in particular writers for The Simpsons, is, well, I'll give you an example. So one of your uh, fellow writers for The Simpsons, Tom Gamble, is a guy that I know. The first time I met Tom, we went for a walk, and we started talking about um, the Albert Brooks f- uh, film Lost in America. And then we started talking about, in particular, Gary Marshall's conversation with, with Albert Brooks, where Albert Brooks has lost all of his money at Gary Marshall's casino, uh, and he wants Gary Marshall to give him the money back. And I started to say a little bit of the uh, dialogue, and Tom picked it right back, right up and just started saying the rest of it. Uh, I mean, neither one of us had studied for this particular encounter, but and I, and, I was the, and I was the one who brought it up, so there was no particular reason why Tom should be able to recreate that scene. But I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like people who do what you do you know, you really are, if you're not analyzing what you see in here, you are absorbing the stuff that you admire, the stuff that will probably kind of percolate a little bit or marinate inside you and, and come up and produce a different kind of joke. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's how you really learn things. It's just watching, watching and sort of enjoying, you know, that enhances your learning. But you, it's not study. I certainly was loving TV all those years. I never thought I'd be writing it someday. Were you the kind of kid who would watch Ed Sullivan and wait for the comedian? Like, I, you know, was, I was a little bit this way that they'd be saying, well, Elvis will be on in just a second. I'll go, well, yeah, but Myron Cohen, where's Myron Cohen's going to be on a little bit later, right? <laughs> I mean, were you, were, were you <laughs> Myron kind of... Cohen was exactly it. I mean, I, when I was a, like a 10-year-old boy, I would go to school and do my Myron Cohen impression, which I, I still do. It's the only impression I do two delightful Jewish ladies walked into Grossinger's club. There you go. Thank you, everybody. Myron Cohen. But so, yeah, I love Myron Cohen. I love the comedians on Ed Sullivan. I remember this moment. I was six years old, and Woody Allen came on doing Mm stand-up, you know, back in his stand-up days before all the movies. And there I am. I'm a kid in Bristol, Connecticut. I'm literally the only Jew in town. And, uh... And I hear see Woody Allen doing his stand-up. And, and as a six-year-old boy, I said, this guy gets me. <laughs> now, now, mind you, I may not be the only six-year-old Woody Allen ever got. But uh, the point is, I just I knew it when I saw it. I go, this is what I want to be. I know. I'm going to let's just breeze right past that. But uh, Woody, Woody Allen is, you know, I liked, I loved my father. He was a great man. But Woody Allen was like a second father. If, Second father to me. If he was any more of a father to me, I would have married him. So, uh... <laughs> uh, oh, we're talking to Mike Reese right now. I should mention that he is going to be uh, at the Mark Twain House, uh, uh, unless they hear this show and cancel him. They might. Um, <laughs> no, but um... my wife is looking at me in the next room, going, "Stop, stop! Um, what is the matter with you?" Uh, your charming wife, who I've actually met and who is the reason that you visited North Korea before Trump even thought about visiting North Korea, right? That is correct. I've been to North Korea, and we were planning a trip back in September, if you can believe it. But uh, uh, after Trump met with them, they said, no more Americans. (laughs) It's absolutely true. You mentioned in the book that your wife has taken you to, I think you say, every Jew-hating country in the world. That's right. Uh, Iran, Iraq, Syria, South Carolina, all of them. (laughs) But yes, I've been to, I think, 21 Muslim countries, and I love them. They're all wonderful. They they are so hospitable. It's 
People should know that about these places. Uh, they're they're very kind. Iran is quite literally one of the nicest places on earth you can visit with the warmest, most cosmopolitan people you'll ever meet. So um, travel's been good. And are you still on? You were at one point. Uh, you and your wife were on the waiting list to go to Mars. Is that still the case, or did you flunk your uh, test? Or we no we <laughs> we got our names on the list to go to Mars. They were looking for a middle-aged, childless couple to send to Mars on the presumption that if if they died, who cares? That was that was the thinking that went into it. And we said, sure, let's go. You know, I'm just thinking, hey, free food for a year and a half. Why not? And we got on the list. We actually got Neil deGrasse Tyson to, uh, to recommend us for it. And then the whole project fell apart. We were game. But uh, and then somebody... Uh, who works for the space program said, you know, I, I think we might send professional astronauts on this mission. You know, <laughs> not just somebody who wants a free bed for 500 days. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think I've, I didn't even finish the, the previous statement, but uh, Mike Reese will be at the Mark Twain House and Museum on Thursday, July 26th uh, in the evening at 7 p.m. Uh, and you'll be able to buy tickets and you'll be able to get your book signed and... Uh, he'll give you a thumbprint. I don't know what he'll do. Yes. He'll do like almost anything you ask, probably. Uh, but that you is know me. Yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> you did grow up in Bristol, Connecticut, which is yeah. obviously a crucible, a cradle, really, <laughs> of, um, of something anyway. So I, I don't know what, what role did Bristol play in forming the Mike Reese that we know and love today. Any? Well, I'll go to the broader question that I wish I had an answer for, which is. More Simpsons writers have come from Connecticut than anywhere it's true. else. It's 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 a quarter to a third of our staff is always Connecticut people. And I don't have a theory on that. I don't have a joke on that. Uh I can't figure it out and uh, I'll leave it to, you know, the scientists at Yukon to figure out what's in the water. The one interesting thing about Simpsons writers is they all come from places like Bristol, Connecticut. They all just pop up in crazy little suburbs all over America. They never come from the big city. They never come from a show business background. I think it's just some genetic abnormality (laughs) that pops up, you know, once in every 10 million births where they look at the kid and go, all right, he can write for The Simpsons. (laughs) So that was it. I don't know what shaped me. Anyone who's been to Bristol will know, though. I mean, it's a lot like Springfield. There, There are a few things... I've used from my youth, from Bristol specifically, that we've used on the show. So that's been helpful. And uh, the people in Bristol, a lot of them were like the people in Springfield. In fact, the very first joke on the very first regular episode of The Simpsons, that is, we we debuted with the Christmas show, but then the very next episode showed Homer losing at a game of Scrabble. He gets real mad, and then you cut to... The Scrabble set is burning in a fireplace, <laughs> and I saw that happen. My friend's father did that in front of me, so uh, Bristol was good for that. Right, your friend's father set fire to a Scrabble set. It was actually Perquacky, if you remember Perquacky. <laughs> and my friend's father, by the way, was named Mister Burns, uh, for what that's worth. All right. So we, so far, we've referenced Perquacky, Buddy Sorrell, and Myron Cohen. 
I feel way like too much I, Myron Cohen. Yeah, There's like nobody losing. listening at this point, <laughs> I Colin. Well, I feel like we're us- losing the younger listeners anyway here. We may not <laughs> entirely know what we're talking about. So we should keep doing that so we can uh, lose even more of them. So um, when... <laughs> One of the things that you were doing, I guess the thing you were doing before you went for the went to work for The Simpsons was, like a lot of really good comedy writers, working on It's Gary Shandling's show. First of all, I have to ask you, I mean, I, I was watching the uh, the documentary, the Judd Apatow documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, and since it's 27 hours long, every once in a while you would pop up <laughs> onto, onto it and I would say to my significant other, that's Mike Reese, he's been on my show. Uh, <laughs> But that was, you know, I mean, one of the things you get from the documentary and remember about that show and Larry Sanders, too, was there's a way in which Shandling was kind of insisting all the time about doing something different or if if something had been done, he didn't want to do it. And I don't know. I feel like that's sort of something that you took from there and made it into kind of a routine on The Simpsons show. It still feels like a show that's trying to top itself all the time. But maybe you could just say something about whatever influence Shandling did have on you. Well, it was a remarkable thing. I was working on It's Gary Shandling Show, which, by the way, was the lowest rated show on television. Second lowest. Second lowest. Second lowest show. Okay. After it made for a better story. The lowest rated show was actually (laughs) the Tracy Ullman Show, which featured these one minute Simpsons cartoons. So that we were the tag team, you know, we. (laughs) <laughs> we we were the duo that that comfortably insulated the bottom. We were number ninety nine and a hundred in the ratings every week. So I was on summer break from it's Gary Shandling show when they were starting up The Simpsons, and they called me. They said, "You want to work on this?" I go, "Why are you calling me?" They said, "Because everyone else has turned this job down." <laughs> and uh, so I took The Simpsons job, including Tom Gamble, who keeps. Who's almost as popular as Myron Cohen in this hour? Tom Gamble turned the job down, so I took the Simpsons job. I didn't tell anyone what I was doing, and it was just a fun summer job. Nobody thought it would turn into anything. Nobody, even though we made thirteen episodes, no one believed the show would run more than six weeks. And so we just had a ball, and it was a great summer. And then I had to go back to it's Gary Shandling show for another year and watch as The Simpsons debuted and became this huge hit. But it's an amazing fact that half the Simpsons writers came out of It's Gary Shandling Show. We were writing the same kind of show, same kind of jokes. We were trying to reinvent the form, and it was even the same writers. Sam Simon, Jay Kogan and Wally Walidarski, Max Pross and Tom Gamble all worked on Shandling Show to no ratings, and then we changed a few things, and probably the biggest thing we changed was getting Gary Shandling out of it, and suddenly we were the biggest hit in the country. (laughs) Um, Well, the documentary is really interesting. Um, I developed several large blood clots during it because it is so long. (laughs) uh, um, So I'm being treated for those tomorrow. All all right, so uh, we're going to take another quick break here. We're going to have more of Mike Reese uh, when we come back. Mike Reese, author of Springfield Confidential Jokes, Secrets, and Outright Lies from a Lifetime Writing for The Simpsons. We'll be back after this lovely musical selection. Look, it's Tony Bennett. Hey, good to see you. It's against the law to frown in capital city. You'll get like a stupid clown when you chance to see... Fourth Street and D. Fourth Street and D, yeah. Once you 
get a whiff of it, you'll never want to roam. The Duff Brewery. Hello, and welcome to Coming Attractions. Tonight, we'll be reviewing Keanu Reeves in Speed Reading. All right, hotshot. You think you're so smart? Let's see you read this book. Bogus. If you read under 50 words a minute, this book explodes. Ready? Begin. One fish. Two. Oh, no. Two. Two. Oh, fish. Red. It's fish, you idiot. Fish. Dude, now I lost my place. That was not a clip. That was the entire movie. <laughs> All right. That is from The Critic. Uh, and that's, uh, yes, the Keanu Reeves uh, film Speed Reading. Uh, the Critic is another project by Mike Reese, my guest right now. Um, so, uh, Mike, for people who don't remember The Critic, uh, tell us about this. Yes. Uh, the Critic was an animated show I created after I left The Simpsons. And Al Jean and I had been running The Simpsons. And when they gave us a chance to make another animated show, we said, Let's make it as different from The Simpsons as possible, which turned out to be the worst possible strategy. <laughs> but, you know, The Simpsons were a family. We made this about a single guy. Simpsons were middle class. This guy's upper middle class. Simpsons are dumb. This guy was too smart for his own good. And, of course, Simpsons was a huge hit, and the critic got canceled so fast. It got, you know, the six weeks we predicted that The Simpsons would last that came true on The Critic. We got canceled after six weeks on ABC. Uh, the day I, I'll tell this story, which was we aired on ABC, we debuted on ABC, and got great ratings and wonderful reviews. And two days later, my secretary walks in with a big box. And I said, what's that? She goes, that's hate mail. So <laughs> America hated The Critic, and they're entitled to their opinion. But... Uh, it's a nice show in that people still remember it. It's only 23 episodes that we made 20 years ago, and they still watch it. They still like the show, so I'm glad. I'm, I'm, I'm glad the, the 11 people we made the show for have <laughs> finally seen it. Did you read any of the hate mail? Uh, yes, I did. I had to agree with it, and a couple came from family members, and that <laughs> kind of hurt. <laughs> You know, the com I always do say that there are two kinds of people. There are Simpsons kind of people and Family Guy kind of people. And and I, I, I don't even think there's that much resemblance between the two shows. But this is something that you do address in your book, Springfield Confidential. Uh, so, Mike Reese, tell me how you see this particular divide. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I do a lot of public speaking, like the Mark Twain house, and uh, people – always ask that question, what do you think of Family Guy? They never ask what I think of South Park or BoJack Horseman. They never ask about any of these other things. But they got to know what I think of Family Guy. And I love it. I love it to the point where I had to stop watching it because uh, I would pitch a joke at work and then I would go, did I make that up or did I steal it from Family Guy? But the funny thing about it was when Family Guy came on the air, oh, the Simpsons writers hated it so much. And they would go, 
Oh, it's nothing but pop culture jokes. Oh, it's so dirty. Oh, it moves too fast to follow. And I laughed because that was everything people used to say about The Simpsons when it began. So I like it. The Simpsons, I would say, is to The Cosby Show what Family Guy is to The Simpsons. You know, they just kicked everything up a notch. So uh, I like I enjoy the show, uh, and we've made our peace with it. You know, the two shows sort of lift uh, each other in the ratings Sunday nights on Fox. So we're we're glad we have them there. See, if I were going to ask you what do you think of in that context, I would ask you what you think of 30 Rock and uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, because I feel like one of the changes that The Simpsons made, I'm about to be kind of analytical about comedy in a way that you don't it's approve okay. of, um, is, is the pace, all right? The, the pace of The Simpsons, the throwaway jokes, uh, the jokes that don't particularly propel the plot. As you point out in your book, at the beginning uh, of most Simpsons shows, there's like no exposition or there's exposition of the wrong stuff. You know, you don't really introduce the plot. <laughs> For a while, yeah, yeah, and and so I feel as though Tina Fey has been influenced by all that. I mean, you could sort of say the th- same thing about Thirty Rock or, or Kimmy Schmidt. Kimmy Schmidt in Kimmy Schmidt, almost every joke is a throwaway. Very few jokes serve to advance the plot in any particular <laughs> way. So I don't know what. How do you, how do you see that particular comparison? Well, I can go right to the source. Robert Carlock, who created both shows told me we were trying to create a live-action Simpsons. Mm-hmm. He said it was very intentional to match that pace. And candidly, he he lapped us. I watch those shows. They make my head hurt. They move so fast. And, yeah, you know, it all came about, I think, because we came on the air in 1988 when, <laughs> this is not a joke, the f- most fast-paced, most irreverent show on TV was The Golden Girls, the show about... <laughs> Three corpses and a mummy just shuffling around two rooms of a, of a condo. That was as daring as TV got. So we said it was it was the only motivation we had making The Simpsons. And again, partly because we thought it was only going to last six weeks. We said, let's just pack it with stuff. We better put everything we can into these episodes because we're never going to get this chance again. And that was it. We revved up TV and... Now I do see, yeah, everybody follows suit. You can't really get away with a home improvement anymore. You can't get away with a boring show that's the same week after week. Didn't Mitch Hurwitz work on The Golden Girls? I think he, uh, he may have. I think he might have, actually, yeah. Um, so that may be one reason why they you know, picked up the pace at a certain point. Um, <laughs> it so, was a great show, and I broke into TV writing a Golden Girls, and now I am one. <laughs> <laughs> So we've been talking to Mike Reese. Well, one thing that I want to ask you about is, okay, I'll tell you the difference between 30 Rock slash Kimmy Schmidt and The Simpsons. There's a way in which The Simpsons never, and it's weird because it's the animated one of of the the two choices, it never really gives up on the humanity of its characters. Like, ultimately, I don't think that the makers of Kimmy Schmidt, which I'm a huge fan of, are particularly worried uh, they, they they would sacrifice anything for a joke and the Simpsons will sacrifice almost anything for a joke but there's a way in which I don't know that that nuclear family you've n- never really given up on that nuclear family there's a way in which there's sort of I don't know I don't even know what I'm trying to express here but I bet you know what I'm trying to express I know exactly I couldn't agree more uh, I love the humanity of the Simpsons and in fact there there are episodes people love 
that I don't like because I don't want to see the Simpsons be cruel to each other. I don't want to see them get hurt. It's the biggest laugh in Simpsons history is seeing Homer fall down this cliff into Springfield Gorge. Probably our number one joke. And I hate it because I don't want to see Homer get hurt. The Critic, which we were just talking about, is a show I don't like it. I don't like it because it lacks that humanity. And in mm-hmm. fact, when we were discussing with the publisher if they wanted to do this book about The Simpsons, uh, about my career, they said, and we can talk about The Critic. And I said, I don't really like The Critic. And they go, that's our book. They got so excited. They'd never met a show creator who didn't like his own show. So we're <laughs> off to the races. That's how I sold the book was I'm the guy who hates The Critic. So then I sat down with this Matt Kleckstein, who uh, sort of conceived this whole project, and we start watching The Critic, and I'm going, oh, this is pretty good. I like this show. (laughs) Suddenly the whole premise of the book fell out, which is just as well. Um, But yes, there is is a heart that beats somewhere there in The Simpsons, uh, and it never entirely stops beating, and I think that's... Very much to the show's credit. And Mike Reese, it's always so much fun to visit with you. And we've been doing this. Go yeah, go ahead. It's a pleasure. I always have fun with you, Kyle. All right. Next so. anytime I have something to sell, you know I'll come <laughs> calling. Actually, I have to say, I think the first, the only time you've ever been in studio, or one of the few times you've been in studio, it was right, I don't know if you remember this, but it was right when a bunch of animals had escaped from a zoo somewhere like in Ohio or something like that. Oh, yeah. And they were all running all over the countryside. And you pointed out that um, there were a couple of animals still left at large, and one of them was constantly being described as a monkey with herpes. Uh, and, and you pretended to be the monkey and you were going, my mother reads this newspaper. Why do they have to keep calling me a monkey with herpes? So um, it's so great to um, talk with you and also to know that you are coming to Hartford unless they heard the whole Woody Allen part of this show and have <laughs> decided actually to do something else that night. Uh, but otherwise, you will be at the Mark Twain House on July 26th uh, for part of the Mark My Word series. Thanks for doing this, man. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. I love doing the show. And I love talking to Connecticut. I I love my home state very, very much. F-L-A. His name is Ned. E-R-S. That's a stupid name. He's worse than Frankenstein or Dr. No. You can't upset him even slightly. He just smiles and nods politely. Then goes home and worships nightly. His leftorium is an emporium of woe. Everybody hates that stupid jerk. Springfield rocks with Homer's joyous loathing. Filling clubs with angry Valentinos. You don't have to move your feet. Just hate Flanders to the disco beat. Is your perky peppy nightmare neighbory?